I thought that was a perfect song for the beginning of this sermon when I heard it this week because it talks about really the voice of the Lord in dual aspects. We usually think about the voice of the Lord speaking peace, but that's talking about, that song is talking about the voice of the Lord smashing down idols, the voice of the Lord cracking like thunder and igniting the air. It's talking about the voice of the Lord as the creative power of all the universe uh, and doing what God says it does, which is, which is creating calamity and bringing peace and killing and bringing to life. And that's a lot of really what we're going to hear today when we read this passage in 1 Samuel 3. So could I ask you to please stand one more time out of respect for the, for the reading of God's word, out of respect for the speaker, which is not me. I am the reader. The speaker is God. And so we stand in respect for that. Uh, let's listen together intently to the word of God. This is 1 Samuel 3. And now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his place. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Lord, you say that your word is, is living and active. And we believe that, Lord. We believe that it is living and active with us here and now. And so we pray, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would show us our foolishness, Lord, but it would also show us your beauty, especially, Lord, that we would see the beauty of Jesus through these words. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When I, was a, when I was a kid growing up at, in high school in Encinitas, the coolest kid that I knew was a kid named Danny Dean. He's probably maybe two years older than me. He was one of the earliest punk rock kids in Encinitas at that time. This was probably 1981, 1982, and Danny had been punk rock for years, and he was absolutely the coolest kid that I knew. He was also one of the nicest kids I knew, too. Some of the older kids were super mean, and once you cut your hair or you showed up on the scene, they would try to drive you out. But Danny was always the a nicest guy, accepting everybody and, like, folding everybody into the, into the scene. And uh, he had a good heart, but part of his big heart was the fact that he didn't... Uh, he was very sensitive to having to go to jail, which he did often... <laughs> Unfortunately, he drank a lot, ended up him being in jail. And one day, uh, as he went on a beer run with a bunch of our friends from a party in, across the railroad tracks from uh, where we were in Encinitas, on the way back, the train started coming down the tracks, and Danny, I guess, in his mind, decided he just didn't want to go to jail anymore, and he stood on the tracks. And his last words were, do you want to see something hardcore? And he just stood there as the train came by and hit him and took his life. Now, the big moral, there's a lot of morals to that, to that story. Morals of listening to the voice of the world is certainly part of that story. But a big part of that story is that in the world of the train, when you are in the environment and in the world of the train, there is no neutral encounter with the power of the train. If you are standing on the tracks, uh, you can't be neutral. You can either stay on the tracks and let it hit you in all of its power and fury, or you can stand off the tracks and pay it respect, that the, pay it the respect that it deserves. Uh, there is no neutral encounter with the power of a train. Now, why am I telling you that story? When I was in seminary, again, one of the more shocking moments in my seminary career was this idea presented to us that there is no neutral encounter with the, with the Word of God. There is no neutral encounter with the voice of the Lord, which is in the Word of God. It is the Word of God in, in the Gospel, too. It brings you face to face with the power of God. The gospel is, is, has the power to create the life of which it speaks, and it also has the power to bring destruction to those who would pay no attention to it, to those who would not approach God with respect and in the right way. Um, and we like to talk about 
a lot on the one side about the power of God to bring life, and rightly so. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be proclaimers of the gospel and to speak about how the word of God has in it the power to bring life to the one who hears, to the one who listens and abides by it. But the opposite is also true. And the opposing truth is that the power of God, the voice of God, the word of God, even the gospel has the power to destroy for those who will not pay attention to it. Uh, Both are true, life and death. The book of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. It's powerful now. It pierces. It cuts. Uh, It is dividing. It is discerning. And the story that we just read, the story that I just read is really, it's part of Hannah's prophetic oracle prayer that she prayed in chapter 2, playing itself out on the real stage of life and these actors that God has positioned in the world to act out uh, if these physical realities that were really pictures of spiritual realities for us. And part of Hannah's prayer is she prays, in the middle of it, she prays the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. That judgment and salvation go hand in hand because the same word that saves the believer also forces the believer to condemn himself by denying the reality of the word that God speaks. And that's really not just true on the stage of life that we see here in this play uh, this real story, a true historic story that God has manifested on the stage of history to teach us spiritual realities, but this is always true on the stage of life everywhere. And so the, the, really the big idea in this passage, the one thing I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see more than anything in, in through this is that the voice of the Lord kills and brings to life through the gospel. The voice of the Lord kills and brings to life through the gospel. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, the voice of the Lord kills. You know, again, that's not a pleasant topic, right? I just uh, found out recently this week, I went to my old dentist's office and uh, found out that the old receptor, the old office manager, who was an acquaintance of mine, not um, somebody I knew really well, but I found out she always looked very thin and unhealthy, and I always wondered why, and I found out this week that she had finally she had passed away from anorexia. Anorexia is an awful disease for a million reasons. Um, talk about the power of a false gospel taking hold of somebody's life and listening to the voice of that gospel and it bringing destruction. Uh, but, but anorexia is an awful disease physically because it, it, it ends up killing you because of the malnourishment of it the lack of food and the nourishment that food gives us, it eventually causes your organs to shut down one after another uh, and cause your eyesight to go out, your hearing to go out, your, your, organs and your, uh, and your, your, your organs and your body to go out, and eventually you can die. You cannot die of a heart attack because your heart eventually breaks and fails. It's a um, destruction that happens from being malnourished. And as bad as that is, and it is bad, I don't want to diminish uh, the, how sad as that is, and as much as 
we should be conscious of that reality and how people are suffering in that way by believing the false gospels of the world and that we should be praying for people like that. As bad and as awful as that is, it is uh, there is a worse malnutrition. There's a worse famine. There's a worse... Uh, there's a spiritual famine that can happen to us. Amos, the prophet Amos in chapter 8 talks about... Um, he's talk, in, in, in talking to Israel, he's saying... He, he's, he talks about, uh, about how how a famine, a regular famine of food is bad, but there's an even worse famine that he says is coming for Israel. A famine of the word is going to come for Israel, that God's discipline on Israel is to cause the word to be rare, to cause the word to be unknown, and out of that malnourishment of God's word being the food that we really live on, all the spiritual... Um, all of the spiritual uh, analogies or likenesses of the physical maladies will come to bear in Israel's life. Not just their physical organs or their eyesight shutting down, but their spiritual sight shutting down. Um, they becoming malnourished and feeding on the word of the world instead of the word of God, becoming sick and blind and deaf and eventually easing into, into death. Uh, and that is what we are seeing here in this story. We are seeing the end of an era. This is the end of the period of Judges. The temple at Shiloh uh, is really the last period of the, the total breakdown of Israel uh, to where they have actually become worse than the nations that they dispossessed in the land. They have become worse than the Sodomites. They become worse than the people who lived in Gomorrah. Uh, the religion of is is corrupt to the core, and as a result of that, they have lost the ability to see. Their ears have become dim. They become fat on sin. They are deaf, blind, sick, and ready to be swept off the stage of history. And Eli, really, Eli the priest, is given as a as a personification of this. He's a real guy. This stuff is really happening to him. But we see Eli. These physical symptoms crushing Eli and his reality. We see that when he when we were first introduced to him, we see that he cannot, as the high priest of Israel, he cannot tell the difference between a woman deeply in prayer and a drunken woman. He thinks Hannah's drunk. He's got no discernment. Uh, he can't hear God's voice, but he can hear all the gossip surrounding his sons and the evil that they're doing. In the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, we, his eyes are growing dim so that he cannot see. In the next chapter, it's going to say that his eyes have become set. Really, they are lifted up in pride against the Lord, and he has become completely blind. Uh, and eventually, we'll see that he meets his end by falling over backwards and by analogy, by metaphor, being crushed under the weight of his own sin. And then the author, in this, in this literary beauty, really ties it into the state of Israel, saying, in the same breath, things like, the lamp of God had not yet gone out over Israel. The lamp was never supposed to go out. That's a reference to God sweeping away the whole Shiloh temple structure. The Philistines are on the way. And God is about to sweep the whole thing into the dustbin of history. Says that the, the that there was no uh, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, and so it uses Eli to teach us of the spiritual state that Israel is in, and that's the big idea. The big idea 
of the awful part of this chapter is that there is a widespread famine of the word of God. And the priesthood at Shiloh, the most, and most of Israel uh, has rejected the voice of the Lord and then because the voice of the Lord is itself power and life, they have necessarily slid into the state of blindness, being deaf, malnourished, fat on sin and soon to be dead. Everything awful that happens to us when we're malnourished with physical food, there's a, there's, it's a picture of a spiritual counterpart. When we're malnourished, when there's a famine of the word, all those things, oh, they're a spiritual disease that happens to us. That's even worse. That's even worse. Um, and this is not just for unbelievers. This is for Christians. This is not just for unbelievers. I mean, the, a big part of this is, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but really, uh, as, there's, there can, as a famine in the church happens, a famine of the word in the church, whether it's by a lack of the word of God, whether it's by a poisoning uh, and, a, and a, a perverting of the word of God, or whether it's just a, in, a, in, a, in a world in a culture where there's so much word of God going out, we just become numb and ignore the word of God. All of those things cause spiritual malnourishment and can cause us to become spiritually sick. This is why we encourage everybody, come to church every week, whether you're feeling it or not. Because the word of God is being preached, is being proclaimed, and it's nourishing us. It is nourishing us like a meal. It's why I'm so intent on getting everyone to come to our Sunday school classes, to our catechism classes, to hear the word of God preached but also taught so that our minds are being shifted away from believing lies of the world and being able to think in a Christian sense. And so when I go into Tim's class, I see you know, 10 people in there. I don't see 60 people in there. I'm crushed as a pastor because I know that our flock is being spiritually malnourished from neglect and that's sad breaks my heart you have a friend uh, he's not a friend I met him once (laughs) guy I I met once as a pastor his name's Vody Bauckham he's from Houston, Texas Uh, and he said the first time I heard him speak he he said this wonderful he's he's talking about how um, about people who say doctrine divides can't we just love Jesus why do we have to understand doctrine as a foundation for our lives? And, and he said, that's great, but in, before we, in Vody's response to that was he said, before we can just love Jesus, first we have to determine doctrinally who Jesus is, then we have to determine doctrinally what love is in a Christian sense, uh, and there's like four or five other doctrinal issues we have to settle before we can even just do the simple thing of just loving Jesus. Uh, and so, all that to say, why is it so important to come to church every week, whether you're feeling it or not? Why is it important to go to Sunday school? It's because those doctrines are filling in, in our life, an understanding of who God is, and it's the power of God and the Word of God that nourishes us and gives us strength to carry on for the road ahead and through the week. That's for, for Christians, And so it's scary that we can become malnourished, but it's even a scarier 
thing for not for not Christians, people who aren't Christians. Listen, did you just see what happens at the very end of this oracle that um, that God gives to Samuel? It says, it says, therefore, in chapter, this is verse 14, therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Doesn't that sound harsh or scary? What does that mean? Well, it's even scarier when you realize that Jesus basically says the same thing to the Pharisees in Matthew and in the Gospels. And the context is the fact that the Pharisees are refusing to hear or to listen to his voice as the voice of God proclaiming who he truly is. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It's almost similar language at the end, right? What is he saying? Is he saying if you blow it this weekend, no, you can't come back to church? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is the voice of the Lord presents salvation to us. What was it that Eli's household did ultimately? They despised the sacrifice. They despised the animal sacrifice, which was a picture of the redemption in Jesus. That's what they had. That's the promise from God that they had to trust in, and they despised it as worthless, as nothing. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're doing the same thing. The voice of the Lord is presenting to you the gospel, and if you dismiss that, if you despise it as worthless, as nothing, there can be no atonement. There can be no atonement for you when you willingly reject the only atonement that's made available for us. And that's how the Word of God kills. It presents truth to us, forces us in a position to either accept that truth as real and therefore receive life or to reject it in favor of something else and get death. The analogy with the train breaks down because you can leave a train alone. The train only has power in the realm of the train track. But the word of God has power universally. There's no escaping it. There's no way to get away from it. You can make all sorts of excuses and rationalizations and come up with clever arguments all day long about why it's not true, but it doesn't change the fact that it is the voice of the Lord presenting life. You know, Paul says that we are, this is another scary verse, says we are, Christians, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, which means we have this sobering reality that when we present the gospel to people, it's doing only one of two things. There's not a maybe category. It's not like Facebook events where you can click interested. I mean, you, maybe you can and come back to it later. I certainly did for 20 years. <laughs> But eventually you have to make that choice before death. 
To the one, we are the aroma of life. To those whose God, the power of God's word is calling into salvation, we are the aroma of life. But to others, we stink. We smell like a rotten corpse. It's not because their consciences aren't being convicted with the reality of our speech, but it is bringing to mind and forcing people to, to, to take stock of the condemnation that they know they face and because of that, it makes us stink to them. And that's a sobering thing. And that's what's happening here. The priesthood at Shiloh, the tabernacle, all that was supposed to be light to Israel has become so sick from malnutrition that in the next chapter, we're going to see next week, God is going to use his enemies to sweep it all away. But in the midst of this whole story, there's a contrast. In the midst of all this word and voice of God killing, God is also bringing to life. Second part, the voice of the Lord brings to life. Now, if you read enough commentaries on this passage, you'll come across enough, uh, some commentaries that say this passage or sermons. They say this passage is basically about training yourself to hear the, God, the voice of God audibly speaking to you. Samuel heard the voice of God audibly speaking to him, and Samuel is a model for us to then figure out how to learn to become spiritual enough to hear God talking to us, and then we can go and tell other people what God said, right? Which is a popular wish. It sounds powerful. It sounds special. It sounds fascinating, and we're Americans. We love that stuff, and so there's a some people that says that's what this is all about. Uh, I had an old, pa- old pastor once tell me a funny story. It was actually in the context of a membership interview, and these people were bringing up, you know, the fact that do you believe that in the word of knowledge that God gives people a word of knowledge to come and bring to you? And this old pastor, he goes, well, he goes, you know, for every one person that comes up with a word of knowledge that is helpful and beneficial. In my experience in the church, for every one of those guys, there's 10 guys who come up with a word of knowledge to the cute girl in the church, and the word is, you are supposed to marry me, or something like that. Uh, In other words, for every one guy who's saturated in the word of God because of his devotion, because of his own study, and so therefore when he does something like that because he's so saturated with the word of God, the word of God naturally comes back out of him. There's 10 guys that just want to use that as a magic power to get what they want, <laughs> to use God as a genie. Um, and so, funny story, but this is, uh, this is not about that. This is about something so much better than that. And that's what I want to convince you of. Uh, This is not about how to get to self to hear the audible voice of God speaking to us, but it is a true story from the history of God's redemption that's been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit to teach us about what God is doing in the world, what God is like, uh, what God is doing for us, what we can really hang our hats on And even in the midst of God sweeping away the corrupt system of Shiloh and the priesthood, God is faithful to his word and his covenant promises in bringing up new life. You see, not not everything in the Bible 
is normative practice, okay? Just everything that happens in the Bible is not always stuff for us to practice. Sometimes it's historical events, talking about who God is to teach us stuff. And that's what this is. This is a historical or what we call a redemptive historical event uh, that's teaching us about salvation and about God. And let me, I'm going to help you see that. Here, let me, let me back up the redemptive historical timeline a couple of clicks and show you what's happening here. This is actually Jesus working. Um, in this story now, we're at the judges. Uh, we've gone, this is right before the kingship, but the, the, the people have been in the land for a while. But before all this, we see in the Exodus that God had delivered his people Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, right? Now, is that, is that normal practice for us or is that a historical event that God's using to teach us something about salvation? The Exodus. Not normal practice for us. It is a historical event that God is using to teach us something about Jesus. And listen to this. This is from Jude, uh, the book of Jude in the New Testament. This is the fifth verse of Jude. It says this, Now I want to remind you that although you, were once, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Isn't that amazing? That was actually fought against by liberal scholars forever and ever. They used to say, God. But the, the, the evidence, the textual evidence just kept mounting and mounting until even liberal scholars had to admit that the original writings said that it was Jesus who was the one who brought his people out of slavery from Egypt through the Exodus. So this is a redemptive historical event something that God did. It does teach us a spiritual reality that salvation is our exodus from this world to the next, but it's teaching about a historical event where Jesus was at the center, okay? Now, right after that, people go to Sinai, Mount Sinai. Moses gets the law, and then Moses and the elders in this little tuck, tucked away in the corner of Exodus 24, there's this story about Moses and the elders who go up onto the top of the Mount Sinai, and they actually eat and drink with God on the mountain. Let me read it. It says this, And then Moses and Aaron, Aaron, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up to Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men, meaning he didn't kill them, like he promised he would kill any beast who came too far up on the mountain because of his holiness. Instead, it said he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, but they beheld God and they ate and drank. Who did they just eat and drink with? Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They ate and drank with the Lord. And now let's wind it up to our story here. It says Samuel is sleeping in the tabernacle, in the presence of the ark, not being killed by it. And what happens? It says, and the Lord came and stood. Jesus walks into the room and stands there next to him as at other times and calls him Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, speak for your Lord hears. Who is it? Jesus. 
calling Samuel to his prophetic office. This is really Samuel being called as the first capital P prophet, the way we think about prophet. There were men of God. We used to call them men of God up to this point. But as far as the prophet uh, being part of the government of Israel, the guy who would bring, uh, who would charge the king with wrongdoing, the guy who is in charge of speaking God's word to people. This is Samuel being brought into that office. It's his prophetic call. Now, what's important about that? Why is that so important to understand that that's what's happening? It's because the reason God gave us these prophetic offices of prophet and a priest and also of king Uh, was to show us what God is like, to show us what God is really like, and to show us what God has done for us and what God is doing for us. So Samuel's called as a prophet, and as a prophet, his job is to what? Is to reveal the word of God to the people. Um, He's also a priest. He has a linen ephod. He's opening the doors of the temple. He's sleeping with the ark. He's ministering to the Lord. As a priest, his job is to mediate between God and man. And those offices, God created those to teach us about what he's really like because they're all pointing forward again to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, meaning that he reveals to us in the ultimate sense of what God is like. Now, why is that important? Because look, because you know, you think God, what does your mind do? Your mind kind of blurs out and you think, you know, I don't know, whatever. You either, you know, I had a friend that used to think God like ultimate power on the other side of the galaxy, other side of the universe. We put things in spatial uh, terms because we're spatial bound creatures or time bound creatures. We put things in all those terms, but we can't. It's hard for us to comprehend what God is or what God is like. And so when Jesus comes, he, when it is God himself who incarnates as a man, and you see Jesus doing things like stopping everything he's doing to go all the way across town to, to minister to a family whose little 12-year-old girl is sick. What does that tell you about God? It tells you that he's a God that cares about every little thing that's going on in our families and in our lives, that he would do that. And then on the way there, there's a woman who has been sick for 12 years, literally bleeding out for 12 years, and she touches his robe. He stops what he's doing to turn around and just assure her, calls her daughter, daughter of Israel, your faith has healed you. We know when we see like Jesus going to Lazarus' tomb and crying, we know that God is not just this crazy, impersonal power somewhere out there, but he's so overwhelmed with grief from the pain and suffering of death and sin in the world that he literally cries and weeps for us. And he doesn't just stop there, he actually fixes it. Lazarus, come forth. Prophet, ultimately revealing to us what God is like. But he's also a priest. Priest is the mediator between God and man. And he's not a priest way, he didn't just stay in the heavens. He's the kind of God, the kind of priest who came, left all the glory of heaven and came down to be with us. And really what the book of Hebrews says happened at the cross. It says that it said the cross was an altar 
And Jesus was the high priest. But he was also the sacrifice. And it presents this picture of Jesus as high priest on the altar of the cross, offering himself up, his own body up, in place of the people to forgive our sins and bring us into everlasting life. That, that's the kind of God that we have. There's no other God like that. Lissa has a song, starts out like that. No other God kneeled to wash my feet. A servant who would die for his people. Plenty of gods out there that call you to die for them, but only the Christian God went through with actually dying for us. And so, look, this is so much bigger than just learning how to get superpowers. I know that's tempting, but this is about the power of God and who he is, what he's like, his compassion, his love for us, uh, and the fact that he had offered up himself in our place to give us life. And he does that point three through the gospel, last part, through the gospel. So what does that mean? Are you trying to now, I'm trying to beat it out of our heads that God doesn't speak to us at all right now? Is that what you're trying to say, Rob? That there's no speaking of God today, that all we have is this dusty book and we can like read stuff about God, we could read about God talking to us in the past, but, but he doesn't talk to us now. No, that's not what I'm saying. God does speak to us now. We need to make a distinction between the ordinary ways of God and God's extraordinary ways. We Always God can do whatever he wants, right? Don't try and put God in a box. God can do whatever he wants. And for example, when we hear stories of thousands of Muslims in restricted countries who have no Christian missionaries come out of that and say, Jesus appeared to me in a dream and said, follow me, you have to look at that and go, all right. <laughs> All right. But here's the thing. See, that sounds to us fantastic, and it sounds special, and we're Americans, and we say, I want to be fantastic and special. <laughs> and that's how to do it. And so we, we chase that down, and what it does is it causes us to miss the really fantastic and the really special that's literally right under our noses. That is literally right under our noses. And what I'm trying to say to you is that everything that we've heard here today, as much as it is in accord with God's word, is the present voice of the Lord. It is God speaking to us. Look, if... We all believe Genesis 1-1, right? Hopefully, I hope you do. God said what? By the power of God's voice said, let there be light, and what happened? Light, and everything else. We don't have a problem with that. God speaks, boom. It creates the reality of which he speaks. It has that kind of power. If Jesus walked in the back door right now, and came in here in this room bodily and said, um, he's not going to do that unless it's the second coming, but let's just say, work with me here. He walks in and comes to somebody who's very sick in our congregation and he says, 
you are healed. He speaks. You are healed. And the person's healed. None of us have a problem with that, right? We'd be like, power. Jesus spoke. Physical reality is rearranged into health. No problem with that, right? But listen, listen to what the word says about the word. This is what it says. It says, in the reading of the gospel today, it said, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's just not a one-time event. That's not sinner's prayer. That's not the altar call. That's not the things that contemporary American Christianity has trained us to think. That is a continual building in faith that comes to us through the power of hearing God's word. It is God word, his voice in power recreating us in a progressive, ongoing basis. It also says, we talked about this already a little bit, book of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and of marrow. That is talking about power. Now power. Living. Active. What do those words imply to you? That it has power right now to do stuff. What does all that mean? Well, our catechisms, one of our catechisms says this, that the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means to evangelize the world, to extend the church, to build up believers. It means that the preached word and also the word that's read as we read the word is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. When the word is preached, when the word is read, the Holy Spirit inhabits that and empowers it to become the present voice of God here and now in power, creating the realities of which it speaks. acting in the world in power. We are, theologians talk about different ways to think about the word of God. There's the incarnate word, that's Jesus Christ, ultimate truth. There's the inspired word, the apostolic word, the word that the apostles preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody doubts that had power, right? And then there's the canonical word. The canonical word is the word that the Holy Spirit has preserved for us in the Bible But it doesn't end there. The chain doesn't end there in just reading old words. There's also the final part is the sacramental word, meaning a fancy way to say that when the word is read, when the word is preached, when the word goes out, Holy Spirit re-inhabits it in the same way that it inhabited the preaching of the apostles and it has the power to create life. When God says, let there be light, Light. When God says, your sins are forgiven, forgiven. When God's word says, you are justified, you have been made right before me in holiness, you have been made right in holiness. When God's word says, you have died to sin, creates that reality. You have died to sin. And so in our worship, in our liturgy, God calls us to worship. It's his voice calling us in, to inviting us to worship him. It's his voice confronting us with the law. It's his voice pronouncing our forgiveness. It's his voice 
teaching us about who he is, what he's like, what he's done in the sermon. It's his voice giving us a blessing as we leave the room. And so, am I trying to say that God doesn't speak to us today? No. I'm trying to say he is speaking to us all the time. We just have to listen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's end there. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. It is precious to us. Lord, our rational world wants to combat our, the spirit within us and tell us that that can't possibly be true. Words spoken out cannot have the power to change reality. Our words don't, but your words do. And help us to lean into that, Lord. When your word says that we are forgiven, Lord, help us to lean into that and to know that we are forgiven so that we can enjoy vibrant and beautiful fellowship with you. Help us to know as we go out and preach the gospel, Lord, as we find ways to share this message of hope that we know it's your voice speaking in and through us, bringing life to those that you have called to life so that we can be encouraged. Lord, as I go to China this week, I pray, Lord, that you would do that. That through me, through all the house church leaders, through all the seminary, uh, we pray that you would inhabit by the power of your spirit, the canonical world, to bring it into living, active power so that China might continue to explode in faith and overflow its boundaries, bringing the gospel into the Muslim world and all the way back to Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, that we would see that happen here in San Diego, that we'd be so convinced that your word had power that would come out of our mouths and that we would see fruit We pray, Lord, as we always have, that we would see a thousand people come to faith in your word through us. And through it all, Father, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would get all the credit and all the glory because we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.